All right, well, we're in a short little series, just three weeks long, uh, that leads up to our Christmas services, and uh, we're calling it How Matters. So it's all about this age-old debate. Uh, does the way that you go about something matter to the outcome, or is the outcome most important, and you could just say the end justifies the means? And the reality is there are many times in life you can take a shortcut and get away with something. But what we're learning in this series, if God has told us how, well, then how matters? Y'all with me on that one? No shortcuts when God tells you how. So part one of the series was last week. It's online or on the app if you missed it. Part one was how you live matters. God's the one who created you. He has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life. He's the one that has great things in store. If we want that plan and we want that purpose to come to pass, then we might need to be doing it his way, right? He's got the end in mind. We might need to go about it his way. How you live matters. I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front today what part two is all about. Today, part two is how you worship matters. How you worship matters. Let me uh, ask, what comes to mind when you hear the word worship? You know, I know we've all got different backgrounds, different environments. Some of you, as soon as I say the word worship, you think about going to church, right? I mean, that's the first thing that maybe comes to mind. Maybe for some of you, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of dressing up. But not many of you at Grace Life, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. So anyway, let's move on. Maybe for you and you hear the word worship, you, you think about singing songs or raising your hands or your favorite worship album or something like that, right? But before I go any further, I want to be very, very clear about something. Everything you do is worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Every single part of your life, every single action and attitude, you are worshiping someone or something. Everything you do is worship. Are y'all with me? But that's a sermon for another day. That's not what we're going to talk about. I just want to make sure you know that that is the truth. What we are specifically talking about today is what I'm going to term the act of worship. Maybe singing songs, declaring truths about God, physical expressions when we come before God to make much of him. The act of worship, right? Does that make sense to everybody? And I'll be honest with you, this is something that I'm very, very passionate about personally. It's something that we take very seriously here at Grace Life. Before I became a lead pastor and they let me preach every week, I used to lead the worship time, the singing time. I was a worship pastor. And not only was I a worship pastor, Kent Fancher was a worship pastor. And the secret many of you don't know, don't tell her I told you, my wife used to be a worship pastor in Romania. So worship is like a dear to our hearts here at Grace Life. And we want to create an environment all the time where you know that something is different from your living room, that you are in God's presence. Are you all with me? So what we're going to talk about today is how you worship matters, because here's the reason. How you worship determines what happens when you worship. How you worship determines what happens when you worship. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along with me today. We're going to be almost at the beginning. It's very easy for you to find. Uh, just go straight to the beginning, flip a few pages. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, so just the fourth chapter in the Bible. Don't worry, it will all be on the screen right here as well. And we're picking up the story with Adam and Eve right after they have left the Garden of Eden and they have some kids. And it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, firstborn son. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now we've got two boys. Do I have any parents that know trouble has ensued, right? I mean, it says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, that's an important phrase, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought 
of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That's good news. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. That's not very good news for Cain. So Cain was angry and his face fell. You may be reading a version that says his countenance fell. His countenance changed, meaning his mood, his demeanor, his emotions were affected because of this. This is actually the first recorded act of worship in all of Scripture. This is the first time that we see humanity coming before God to offer worship to him. And unfortunately, it didn't go quite like it should have because how they worshiped mattered and Cain didn't do it God's way. Now, you may say, Jimmy, how do you know that? It, it, it doesn't say anything in the first three chapters about how you're supposed to make an offering. So how do we know that Cain didn't get it right? Well, there are quite a few details in the story that tell us God has given them some instruction. First thing was when he said, in the course of time. In the course of time, both of these guys did something at the same time. That meant they had some instruction that God had told them now is the time. It was an appointed time, and they both knew it. Then it says they brought to the Lord. It means that both of them knew where to find God. They came to an appointed place. So God had given an appointed time. God had given them an appointed place. They knew where they could come before God and encounter him and to offer something to him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but that shouldn't be a surprise. Think about this. Cain and Abel are raised in an environment that we can at least say is a God-aware environment. It might have even been a God-worshiping environment. Remember Adam and Eve are their parents. Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Yes, they sinned, but they had no doubt that God was real. They knew God was real. They knew God was there. And I'm sure they told their children stories about God. I mean, that's really all there is at this point. Adam, Eve, God, now Cain and Abel. I mean, there's not a whole lot of other people to talk to or to talk about. So you know that they've conveyed the idea of who God is to them. They're raised in that environment. Then it says that they brought an offering. So we've got an appointed time, we've got an appointed place, and we have an appointed act of worship. They knew it wasn't just, hey, show up. God's got something for you. But you need to come here at this time and bring this, bring an offering. And apparently they had been taught what that offering was because Abel got it right. Two pieces of the requirement. He got both of them right. Cain got both of them wrong. And so we should be asking the question today if we want to understand how to worship God is what was wrong with Cain's offering? You may have heard a sermon preached, I heard sermons preached, on how Abel had brought an animal sacrifice, but Cain had only brought plants, and so Cain's wasn't good enough. I'm going to tell you, though, that's actually probably not correct. The reason for that is because the idea of an animal sacrifice atones for sin, but Cain's would not have atoned for sin because no blood was shed. But there's nothing in the story that says this was a sin offering. It was just an act of worship. It was an offering. And God's people for centuries will have the ability to bring an animal sacrifice for particular offerings as well as uh, fruit of the ground for other offerings. So both would be acceptable to God and there's no reason in the story to believe that one was better than the other. What we do know is that Cain brought the best. I'm sorry, Abel brought the best and Cain did not. Abel brought the best and Cain did not. How do we know that? Because Abel brought the first. He brought the first fruits. God tells us to bring the first to him. 
We bring our first provision. We bring first of everything because it says, God, you gave it to me. And before I have any for myself, I'm going to recognize you as my provider so that then I have to put my trust in you. It's an act of trust. I bring the first to you. And then it said he brought the fat portions. Maybe some of you don't quite get why that is significant, but the ribeye lovers do. Do I have ribeye lovers in the house today? You understand why the fat portions matters. It was the delicacy. It was the savory and the best part. So Abel brings to God his first, which means I'm going to have to now depend on God to provide for me. And he gives him his best, which says you deserve the best. I do not because you were God and I am not. Cain, on the other hand, you know what it said about him? He brought some. Cain just showed up with some of the fruits of the ground. He didn't bring the first. He didn't look at that and go, well, you know, this is the first thing that grew. I'm going to take everything that's grown today. I don't know if anything will grow tomorrow, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to God and trust him. Nope, it didn't say that he gave him the first. It also says that he didn't give him the best. He didn't look at that. He probably looked at it and said, oh, look at that juicy red tomato. Yeah, God's not really going to eat it anyway. Let me give him this wilted little stuff over here. Cain brought some. And the way that we know that is because both of those details, first and best, were included with Abel's offering. But neither of those details were included with Cain's offering. So why didn't Cain bring the first and the best? If Abel knew to do it, it was because God had told him to do it, as it will later be in our scripture and prescribed that way. So he has already heard from God, this is what he's supposed to do. Why did Cain not do that? And that really brings us to the whole point of our message today, everybody. It was because of the heart of the one worshiping. The heart of the one worshiping. Did you notice that God accepted Abel and his offering? God did not accept Cain and his offering? That seems a little strong. God connected the offering to the person so much that when he accepted Abel's offering, he accepted Abel. And when he rejected Cain's offering, he rejected Cain. They went together. And the reason is very simple. You can't separate the material thing from the person because you can't separate the offering from the worshiper because the offering reveals the heart of the worshiper. Y'all catch that? You can't separate the offering from the worshiper because the offering reveals the heart of the worshiper. To reject Cain's offering was to reject what was in Cain's heart. To accept Abel's offering was to accept what was in Abel's heart. Scripture tells us this, actually. I'll just turn there. You don't need to turn there. It's in the back of the Bible, actually, in Hebrews. tells us, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Meaning Abel's was in faith, Cain's was not. As a result of this, Abel was commended as righteous. God commended him. How? By accepting his gift. It was offered in faith. God, I'm going to give you the first. I don't know if I'll get more. I'm going to give you the best because you deserve it, and I do not. It was a heart of trust and a heart of honor. That's what a heart of faith and worship is. See, Abel recognized God's goodness, and when you recognize God's goodness, you're grateful. You don't withhold. Cain did. Abel recognized God's greatness, and when you recognize God's greatness, you're obedient to do what pleases God, not what pleases you. After all, he is God, you are not. That's not how Cain approached it, though. You see, Cain didn't have a heart of faith. It wasn't a clean heart towards God or towards others, and we can see it by his response. When God rejected his offering, Cain didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. After all, you did tell me 
What did he do? He got angry at God. He shows up in front of the creator of the universe, who I'm pretty sure at this point he's heard the stories of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And somehow he still had the gall to show up before God with some second-rate leftover wilted plants. Think about it. And when God says, I'm sorry, that is not what I asked you to do. His response is, who do you think you are to tell me my offering isn't good enough for you? Who do you think you are? And he got angry at God. What has to be in your heart to be able to take a position to be angry at God when you have done the opposite of what God has asked you to do? And then it says that his, his countenance fell, his face fell. Some scholars believe that it means he was depressed. What it definitely means, his mood changed, his, his demeanor changed. I agree with the scholars that say that he had self-pity. He felt sorry for himself. Look what I brought God. And God says that's not good enough. And now I'm starting to feel sorry for myself because after all, look over here. Abel, man, he's feeling good about himself. He's got a smile on his face. My parents, I mean, they're all excited for Abel. They're cheering him on. God has got his back. God's against me. My parents aren't with me. Abel's looking at me like you're a loser, man. I just, I'm, man, the whole world's against me. I just feel so sorry for myself. Self-pity. It's a tale of two different hearts in worship. You might want to say, well, how did these two brothers in the same home get two different hearts? And I would just say, are there any parents in the house? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Look, I got four kids, and I can say something. One of them will laugh, one of them will cry, and the other one will go, meh. Everybody's going to interpret things through their own soul. And if we could, just, can we just have a little fun imagining the whole situation for a moment? I mean, Adam and Eve were telling stories to Cain and Abel. Can you imagine how those stories went? I mean, think about this. All of us grow up saying, hey, mom and dad, how'd you guys meet? Will you tell us the story? Well, you know, I used to have a rib. <laughs> hey, mom and dad, can you tell us what it's like growing up in grandma's house? Hey, mom and dad, I mean, and we, you know how we ask the stories? Can you imagine? And, then, and they just start sharing the story. Oh, let me tell you. Well, we didn't always live here. Matter of fact, we used to live a little ways down the road, you know, and it was an amazing garden. It was beautiful. It was glorious. God had created the most amazing thing that you have ever seen to yourself, and God gave it to us. It was ours. We lived there. It was so amazing. We had walked with God. And you can imagine, apparently, Abel says, wow, man, God is so good. You know, if we honor him, he'll bless us like he blessed you then. We just need to honor him and obey him. You can imagine Cain going, well, if that place was so good, why'd God give us such a dump now? It doesn't sound like he's good anymore. What's his problem? You can imagine them telling the stories of how they did wrong in the garden, of how they had to look at, well, you know, Abel, you need to go keep the sheep. Cain, you need to go plant some stuff. We didn't used to have to work. Y'all got to work now because we sinned. It's all our fault. But y'all going to get on out here. Go get some, grow some stuff for us to eat. You know what I mean? You can imagine him telling the story like, we sinned against God, but God loved us so much that he, he forgave us and, and, and he clothed us. And it's just beautiful what God has done. And then you can imagine Abel saying, well, man, God is holy. If we would just obey him, we will be blessed. It'll be an amazing life. Cain saying, seriously, God, one piece of fruit, all this, over one lousy piece of fruit? What's your problem? It's an amazing difference in how what's going on in our heart can dramatically, differently interpret the exact same circumstances. One environment, one story, two kids, two responses, two hearts. 
One, the heart of faith toward God. The other, not. And the heart was the very thing then that God turned to Cain to address. Let's go back to our story in verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Why is your countenance down? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And Cain missed it. If you do well, you could say, I'm sorry, God. And you could run home and you could get the best and the first and you could bring it back and say, you are God, you are holy, you are worthy. Please forgive me. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? I'm giving you another chance. You can change everything. But if you do not do well, but if you do not do well, and I can see it on your face, man, your countenance has changed. You're angry at me. Look like you're angry at everybody else. But if you do not do well, if you don't deal with what's going on in your heart, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is contrary to you, meaning it's contrary to what I have planned for you and what is good for you and what is right. And you must rule over it. If you do well, but if you don't, Telling him, you know, you could take responsibility for what you just did. I mean, Cain has done the very opposite of what God has put in front of him. And instead of taking responsibility and saying, it's my, it's my fault. I'm sorry, God. He's angry at God that God held him to a standard. Don't miss how important this is in the story. God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It gives us a picture of an animal just waiting to devour you and you walk out the door. The Bible says the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's that picture right there. But this is what is important. There's already sin in the story. He was told how to bring an offering to God. He did something else. It was sin. God held him to account. He judged God. It was sin. Sin is already in the story, and God is warning him that sin is crouching at the door. What in the world is that all about? Here's what that's about. Our response to God when we sin determines if that was for a moment or sin devours us and it becomes a lifestyle. Our response to our hard heart, our response to sin to God when we sin will determine if that was just for a moment or if it becomes a way of life. If you know the story, Cain didn't repent. Cain didn't turn. It became a way of life. In our Bible, it'll only be a matter of sentences before he goes off and kills his brother. Murder. The most important piece in this idea of how you worship matters is the heart of the worshiper. The most important piece in how you worship matters is the heart of the worshiper. That's why the Bible tells us, above all else, above all else, Make a list of everything you can come up with that matters. And then put the heart above it, above all else. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. If you have gone to Grace Life, you have memorized this verse by now because I work it into every sermon I can. Because everything we do comes out of our heart. If I can just get you to a place where you have a heart that loves God and obeys God, I'm out of a job. I don't have anything to preach about anymore. I'm gonna need you to invite somebody to Christmas so I have new people to preach to because if your heart simply turns to you are God, your ways are right, I will do what you say. I don't have to preach. There's nothing left for me to preach. Above all else, guard your heart. Every single thing you do, every single thing you do, every single thing you do flows from it. Cain worship. 
comes from a heart. Able worship comes from the heart. The question is, when you come in here, what heart are you bringing? And I'm sure all of y'all bring able hearts, and that's good. But, you know, just in case, let me just demonstrate for you some of the ideas of what a heart of Cain worship would look like. You know, Cain does things on his own terms, giving God what he thinks is good enough, and he's the one that gets to decide all of that. Cain worship is the one that's got a little something-something in his heart, but he ain't trying to reveal it to everybody else, you know. So Cain worship is when you walk up and you're going, hey, how you doing? I secretly hate your guts, but I'm going to smile at you anyway. Cain worship is where you used to sit over there, but now you sit over here, but the person you used to sit beside is still over there and think we don't know what's going on. Cain worship says, I hope they preach something I like today. I hope it's funny because I like to laugh in church, and I hope they sing my favorite songs. And by the way, oh, is it time for the offering? Let me see if I got something that's comfortable for me to give. Able worship says, God, search my heart. Make it more like yours today. Preach to me anything I need to hear, God, even if I don't like it. Let Pastor Jimmy step all over my toes. Yeah, no amens on that one. But anyway, I'll just keep going. Able worship actually stops out there in that hallway for a minute and reads that sentence on the wall. What do you expect God to do today? Able worship says, God, I expect you to do great things because you are a great God. Able worship comes in here and says, I don't care what the songs are. I'll sing anything that makes much of you. It could even be country music. God, I'm still going to glorify you in this place. That's an inside joke. You have to be there. Able worship says, I'll bring the full tithe because God says so, no matter how uncomfortable it makes my budget. Able worship does what God says on God's terms because he is God. We are not. Now, here's what we're trying to get at today. The reason that the heart matters so much is because all of our worship comes from our heart. All of it. How you sing, how you talk, how you treat other people, absolutely every bit of it comes from your heart. How we worship determines what happens when we worship. I want to close by giving you three powerful results of worshiping with a heart of faith. If we can worship God with a heart of faith, there are three powerful things that are gonna happen in your life that I think we all need. And the first one, hope we get some cheers for this one. Satan flees, come on somebody. Satan flees when we worship. And the reason for that is because Satan hates when God is worshiped. He despises the worship of God. His job, he used to be one of the three chief archangels. We called him Lucifer at the time. Before the fall, he was in heaven. His job was to lead the host of heaven to worship God, to glorify God. But he decided he wanted all that for himself. And so now, anytime that somebody worships God over him, anytime that somebody declares God to be good, even when their circumstances are bad, Satan can't stand for God to be worshiped. He cannot stand when the world looks and makes more of God than of him and what he's trying to do. He hates when God is worshiped. He hates when praise is directed towards God. He hates when truth is declared about God. He absolutely hates the worship of God. Because of that, it's an environment he doesn't stay around for. And then the Bible tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. So as you begin to declare God is good and to even sing out that God is good and to, to express that God is good and to make much of him, Satan wants to go away. God shows up. Satan wants to go away even more. And Satan flees from your presence. And you need to think about this. I don't think many Christians think about this. When you are being attacked by the devil... When you're fighting anxiety and you're having nightmares and waking up in the middle of the night and you feel a weight that's crushing your chest and a pressure upon you and you just feel like the whole world is coming against you and you know it's the devil. 
when you feel his presence, you don't feel the presence of God. Did y'all know that? When you are focused on the presence that you feel attacking you, you don't feel the presence of God. This is why we need to praise God so that the presence that is there to attack us leaves and the presence of holiness and the presence of mercy and the presence of grace comes into our lives and we then experience God. When we worship, Satan flees and it changes whose presence we experience. That's why the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near. What we need to do at a time when we feel the, the devil is attacking us is we need to take that environment and flip it upside down by getting Satan to run and God to invade. And it comes when we worship him. You need to think about this. You actually have an enemy. If you have Jesus as your king, if you are someone who wants to love and worship God with your life, you have an enemy. I told you the Bible says his name is the devil and he prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. That means he's always trying to carry out bad things in your life. And I want to share with you a story. It's one of the best stories in all of the Bible. It was a time when the people of God were going into a battle. They were going into war. And God changed how they were going to fight. It's out of 2 Chronicles 20. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen up, y'all. Just calm yourselves down. Stop worrying. All Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, King Jehoshaphat, just chill. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde you see out there. Stop counting them. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Think about that. And so when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing. Wait a minute. We're going into battle, right? You appoint those who are to fight, the ones with swords. He appointed those who were to, to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy choir robes. They're going to sing and wear choir robes as they went before the army first. Now, see, we're, we can make this real relevant here because we're here at an army base and there's a whole lot of soldiers and folk in the room. And I just want to ask you next time you're deployed, how many of you would like to have an option as you're getting off the plane? Well, some of you, you're very welcome to keep your uh, weapon and your uniform and uh, just go right over there. We'll send you in later. But some of you, if you don't mind, if you drop off your uniform and your weapon, we got a choir robe, choir practice. We're dropping you in first. Just going to sing. Sing them out of there. Come on. Let me just tell you, I can understand why you might be a little reluctant to do that in the natural. But you got to do it in the spiritual. The next time that you're waking up with a nightmare, the next time that you know that what's going on in your life is spiritual warfare, the next time you feel attacked and harassed and like the enemy is trying to make much of himself and destroy your life, how about you send your worship first? How about instead of focusing all that's wrong and calling your friend and saying all that you're feeling and all that you're experiencing and repeating all those bad emotions and all that stuff, how about you just turn on Spotify and God is good and you just start praising him because Satan will flee and God will show up and your environment gets flipped upside down. Everybody. 
Second thing that comes from a heart of worship is that we are changed. That's very good because we need it. We are changed. And primarily, I'm talking about our perspective. Our perspective changes. You see, as we worship God, as we declare truths like he is good, he provides, he answers prayer, nothing's too big for him, he moves mountains, all those kinds of words we sing when we come in here. As we declare those things, they move from here to here. They go from thoughts and words on a screen to convictions in our heart. They become real to us and they change our perspective. And the size of your problems haven't changed, but by the end, the size of your God has changed. God's gotten bigger than the stuff that's in front of you. Psalm 42 says, my tears have been my food both day and night. Men keep asking me, where's your God? I had to say to myself, why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul. <laughs> why the unease within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. I will yet praise him for the salvation of his presence. You see, when we worship God in the midst of a struggle, it reminds our soul that our problems aren't as big as our God. They never have been, they never will be. And by the way, he solves your problems before you even know you have them. Jesus died to redeem you 2,000 years before you made your first mistake. Think about that. And the third thing that happens is that God is glorified. God is glorified. Simply put, when we worship God with a heart of faith, much is made of God. And you need to understand that is the point. God deserves it. Jesus said, if they don't cry out, then the rocks will. Creation is going to praise because creation recognizes he is God. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. He alone is worthy. He alone is perfect. He alone is creator. He alone is God. He deserves all the praise. That is the point. <laughs> Nothing else matters. You don't need the rest of the list. As people who know that we are redeemed and saved by God, as people who recognize God is God and he created, he deserves it. The truth is he deserves more than we could ever give. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. If you've ever been worshiping God and in the midst of it, you just stop and think, God, I'm so sorry. I can't give you all that you deserve. You know, one day all of creation will cry out. One day all of creation will bow their knee and it does it right now. That means there is worship God deserves that God is not getting. He deserves all that we could give him. That's all that we need to say. But just for the fun of it, there's something else that happens when God is glorified. We are not. And that's important. In a fallen world where we make a lot of ourselves, Psalm 100 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we, well, we're his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. You see, when we worship God with physical expression, with shouts of praise, declaring true singing about his glory and his majesty, we are declaring our position before him. We're expressing that our position is significantly different from who he is and what he deserves. Our visible outward physical actions actually demonstrate our position before God. That's why the Bible says how we're supposed to worship God. It says, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Clap your hands 
all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. The Bible tells us there is a way to demonstrate our position, a lower position before God because he is God and we are not. And there are physical demonstrations of exaltation and bowing before. I don't know if you followed the news a couple of months ago. The U.S. Treasury Secretary went to China, which politically you could say is a rival of ours upon the earth. And she met her counterpart, meaning her equal. And what went wrong that day was that she bowed before him. And you want to talk about a social media firestorm. When someone bows before someone that's supposed to be their equal, either saying that my equal in that nation is greater than me or that nation is greater than the United States, it was not a good day for her. And here's my point. If people all across America can recognize it is so wrong when a human American bows before a Chinese official, why can we not recognize that we should bow before a holy God on his throne? If we get that that's wrong, why don't we get that that is right? That's why God tells us, bow, kneel. We raise our hands, we're exalting him. God, I'm just going to pick on some of us for a minute. And I, I get to because I got the mic. But men, stereotypically, we struggle with this. Most of us come into church. <clears throat> Praise you, Jesus. Oh, I'm into this song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's it. That's it right there. Oh, yeah. But about 24 hours ago, yes, we scored. Woo, my team is better, at least until the other team gets the ball. But yes, we scored. Come on, men. Can I just tell you, your children need to see you raise your hands for your forgiveness and your salvation and that God is holy more than for the touchdown yesterday. Just for the fun of it. Some of y'all look like you're going to sleep. Let's do a little experiment. If you believe God is real, would you stand to your feet for me? If you believe God is real, would you stand to your feet? There you go, everybody. And if you believe God is good, gotta get a hand, everybody. If you believe God is good, lift up a hand. And if you believe Jesus is the King of Kings, would you lift up your other hand? Look what you just did in church, huh? Hey, I'll just sit down. Now you can sit down because now you've done it. Hardest one is behind you from now on. It'll be easy. You've done it before. I practice this. I got this. Look, here's the other thing you need to know. This is true. Why is that so hard to do? Because demonstration of love and worship for God before other men confronts our pride. The reason it's so easy to do this at a football game is because every other man there is doing it. Except for the ones who are on the losing side. So why don't we bring that into the church and go, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven, I'm a child of God, and if your hands aren't up, sucks to be you. Because you're on the wrong side. God deserves to be worshiped. And our soul needs the humility 
of worshiping him outwardly. How we worship changes everything. Our soul is humbled. Our perspective has changed. Satan flees. God is exalted. I don't know. Sounds like a good recipe to me. Told you in the beginning, we put a lot of effort into the worship environment here at Grace Life. It's near and dear to our hearts. The problem with that is only gives you a few minutes a week. If you come to two services, you can get double the minutes, but it still is only a few minutes a week. So I want to challenge you in response to this message this week. I want to challenge you to bring worship, the act of worship, an offering of worship into your life at other times. Maybe once a day, maybe 10 times a day, just depending on what you're facing. The devil's after you, do a lot of it. God deserves it. Men, if this is still hard for you, go in your closet, put your AirPods in, and then just practice with nobody watching. God deserves it. I want to encourage you to set aside a time of worship. Spotify, just look up worship. YouTube, just look up worship. Find a couple of songs, put them on, and just begin to invert the presence that surrounds you. Change the environment. Invite God, send the devil packing and put your soul in its rightful place before a holy God. Because how we worship determines what happens when we worship. Let me pray for us. God, we do thank you that you have redeemed us and you've allowed us, your creation, broken humans, to come before you into your presence, to actually speak and to sing and to lift up hands and to do things that bring glory to your name. God, what a privilege and a blessing it is that we get to do that. God, we thank you for it. And we lay right now before you our hearts and we say, God, would you examine our hearts? Would you cause us to be people who come before you with a heart of faith? We offer to you able worship. And forgive us for the times that we've worshiped more like King. And we say, God, may we never do it again. You just stay in a place of worship. I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your King. We talked about it through the message. We talked about it at baptism. Here's the reality. Every single one of us at some point has done something that is not perfectly holy. The Bible calls that sin. And it separates us from God. But the good news is God loves you so much that when you were separated, he didn't want to leave you there. So he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life upon the earth so that when he was crucified, when his blood was shed and his body was broken, it could pay for sins, but he had none. So his blood can pay for yours and mine. And then by the same power that raised him from the dead, you and I can be raised to eternal life. We call it the free gift of salvation. And if you have never received this gift, I want to help you do that right now. Wherever you are, would you simply pray and say something like this to yourself, to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my prayer here today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom?
Amen. Would you all help me celebrate with them, everybody?